Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This moment is a joy for us because this guy is really different. His boring title is he's Chief Executive Officer of Norges Bank Investment Management. Forget about it. This guy has steered the aircraft carrier of Norway's prodigious oil wealth forward through the storm. He is Nikolai Tengen, and what you should know is he's the most interesting portfolio guy out there, including his support of the Sterling Munch show at the British Museum a few years ago. Nikolai, I want to go to the success of your show and obviously the classic painting, The Scream. It seems everyone (laughs) now is screaming. How did you do 14% blended and not scream this year? Well, um, I wouldn't say we're screening, but we are we are pleased with the results. Uh, the fund was up uh, 14.5% um, last year, and in absolute numbers, it's the second best um, year we ever had in a 25-year history. I want to talk to you and quiz you closely on the uproar right now on the value of ESG investing. You've had a number of companies that you st- you stepped aside from, and in 9,000 holdings, you say, we're not going to mention who they are, blah, blah, blah. I want you to give us a primer now on the plus, the minus, the pros and cons of ESG. Well, it's um, clearly a plus. And, um, you know, perhaps in the old days, there was a bit of a trade-off between, uh, you know, ESG and returns. Now, I really think they go hand in hand. The thing is, if you you own a company now which is not sustainable, doesn't have a sustainable business model, uh, you know, not only will you not get finance, you'll not get insurance, nobody would want to work with you and you will have no clients. So it just really goes uh, together to a degree we haven't seen before. Tell me about a sharp ratio analysis of what you do. You are the aircraft carrier. You can barely move the needle with any individual stock or even sector uh, selection as well. In the ferment we're in, including what we saw from the American Central Bank yesterday, how do you find Alpha, how do you find a sharp ratio return that's constructive? Oh, you're absolutely right. We are a very large fund, and um, so there aren't that many places we can hide, and we are quite indexed near in what we do. But at the same time, there are a lot of smaller tweaks we can do in terms of Give us know, an duration. example. Give us an example. Well, there are um, companies we can choose not to own. For instance, um, uh, you know, Wirecard in Germany, we did not own that when it collapsed. It saved us, you know, a huge amount of money. So we can do um, this negative selection, which is uh, which has been good for us over the years. Um, so we do have some means. Actually, last year we have we had access returns of um, of uh, 0.75%, which uh, you know was like 80 billion Norwegian kroner. So we can do things, even though we are index near. Yeah. Lisa, what he just said there is absolutely fundamental to the mathematics of management. It's not what you do. It's what you don't do that adds alpha. (laughs) What you don't buy. And we were talking about ESG and how you're moving into ESG. And I just want to sit on that for a minute, Nikolai, because I know your fund has been really forward on this at a time when oil is outperforming. And we see that this transition has been incredibly difficult. And in an era of inflation, it is the energy stocks that are doing the best. How do you arrange around that? Well, we um, we own the big um, integrated oil companies, and uh, you know there are two ways of handle, of kind of navigating this territory. You can either sell out of the companies and just run away from the problems, or 
you can stay in the companies and be a constructive and long-term shareholder and actually help the transition. And that is what we are doing. So we are there. We got clear expectation when it comes to how we want these companies to to behave and and to do their business, and um, and we own them. And uh, you know we but have made money in this sector. Nic- Nikolai, can you add to that portfolio holding in tandem with your expectation that oil will continue to rally, or does that go against sort of the fundamental ethos of the fund? No, there is no uh, there is no contradiction here. We can own the integrated oil companies. We think they have a very very important part to play in the. In the in the green transition, indeed, um, it's interesting when you look at um, the various um, uh, you know uh, ways that uh, that they do this. Uh, the um, yeah. uh, you know they are really on top of, of this technology and and um, very very important players. So we we really want to be the um, the owner here. Nikolai, at a time of such great inflation, you've come out and you've talked about how you expect returns to be a lot lower in the years to come. How much lower and what are you doing to offset some of the obligations that you're going to have to cover with the returns that you previously enjoyed but are not going to be getting? Yeah, well, first of all, we are a very, very long-term owner, right? We have a, an investment horizon of, you know, 30 to 200 years. So we are, we are looking at this in, in the long term. But it's, it's clear that we are now starting at a, at a point where interest rates are extremely low. Markets are very, very high. Inflation is is rampant uh, across across the world, across sectors, and so on. So this is not a great starting point. So therefore, we do tell people and um, Norwegian people that uh, they should expect lower returns going forward. I want to ask two more questions, Nikolai. One off script, but you just mentioned the word rampant, which the Financial Times headlines today is rampant inflation. Do you have an optimism that inflation will come in as we move on from the pandemic and we get our supply and demand dynamics globally straightened out? No, I think it will remain high for a long time. One more question, if I may, and this goes to your philanthropy you're the largest collector of Nordic art essentially in the world with your vast wealth that you've garnered. You do have what I'm going to call a Norwegian and Scandinavian perspective. Uh, Nikolai, you have a 120-some-mile border with Russia and Norway, and of course, all eyes are to the east in Finland. What should be the Scandinavian response to the new Russia? Hey, that's, uh, that's a tough question. I... Uh... I think that's beyond my level of expertise. I think you should ask, uh, you know, the people in NATO about that and, uh, and uh, not me. Nikolai, Sorry. I guess that might be your answer. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Nikolai Tangen there of the Norwegian Wealth Fund. He is one of the great philanthropists of New York City and, of course, Blackstone front and center now in the debate on investment in real estate. Here are Shanali Basak. Thank you, Tom. John Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, Blackstone's president and COO. John, you just have come off of a quarter in which you brought more money in in three months than you often do in a single year. How does this continue into the new year with all the troubles we're seeing in the economy? Well, Shanali, it's great to be here. I just want to take a moment and talk about this quarter in the year we had, which were amazing and the best in our firm's history. We had 155 billion of inflows, as you noted, in terms of record levels, AUM up 42%. And it just reflects the fact that we continue to deliver for our clients. We had our best performance in our history. And we continue uh, to broaden our platform, investing with retail investors, insurance, and so forth. And that's giving us powerful momentum and record results. So, John, now, how does this 
Yeah, continue. That was your question. Yeah. Yeah. With with record results have also come record pay. I mean, the amount that you have risen your compensation and benefits has outpaced most of Wall Street. There's a war on talent going on out there. And I want to know how that positions you moving forward. Yeah. So two things I'd say as it relates to talent, one of the great things about our business is we have this long term alignment where our investment professionals benefit from rising incentive fees and performance fees. So when we deliver for our customers, their compensation goes up. Obviously, on a year like 2021, that bodes well for our individuals. And it creates variability in our comp structure if things head in the other direction. So we've got, I think, a special position, and we've been able to pay our people well and still grow our margins. So we feel really good about that. You also asked about fundraising continuing. And on that point, what I'd say is, even with the markets off, the S&P is still up 40% from where it was two years ago. And we're also seeing the fact that I think a lot of investors are going to be looking to move out of fixed income. And we think alternatives in our firm will be a beneficiary. So on multiple fronts, we feel pretty good. Now, a lot of people are worried about the market today, but you're investing in firms for 10, 15 years down the road. So are you taking advantage of this opportunity to deploy more money in any case? Well, we certainly, uh, as investors uh, with new capital, we have $135 billion of dry powder, recognize that prices, particularly in public markets and in sectors like technology, uh, can create new opportunities for us. So yes, our teams are on the ground. We're looking for markets that have gotten potentially dislocated. At times like this, uh, investors uh, can sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and that creates opportunities. So yeah, we're looking at things and it's helpful for new capital. On the entirety of small business, you have a real bird's eye view uh, on small business America and some of these medium sized firms through your investments. How significant is the inflationary pressure at a time where we've been talking significantly about how big companies are able to withstand it a lot better? Look, I think inflationary pressure is hitting everybody. It's hitting uh, small businesses, it's hitting consumers, and it's hitting big businesses as well. I, I would say, stepping back, what's happening to the economy is really a, a series of shocks, both demand and supply shock. On the demand side, the 10 trillion of stimulus, fiscal and monetary, um, has led everybody to have more consumption power. So you see people buying appliances and cars, traveling, that's creating a huge demand pull shock. And on the supply side, you know we've got shortages in energy and commodities, labor, housing, all those areas. And that's driving prices up. And so this definitely feels like it will be persistent. It's certainly pervasive. And companies have to alter to that. The companies that are most vulnerable are those who have a lot of input costs. So if you think about a business that has a lot of labor costs or a business that has a lot of raw materials and they don't have the ability to pass on price, maybe like a food manufacturer, yeah. that's, those are businesses that are vulnerable. There are other businesses, of course, that have more pricing power and less exposure to those input costs. Fortunately, a lot of our portfolios oriented that way because we've been worried about inflation and ultimately the normalization of rates as well. John, Jonathan, there is a concern here about a repricing in public markets, how far it has to go. And yet 
We have heard that we really have not seen that repricing in private markets. People aren't selling, so you're not seeing that real-time adjustment to this higher inflationary outlook and, frankly, a Fed with a very different tone. Do you expect the private markets to materially correct in the next 6 to 12 months? I think the private markets and public markets uh, clearly correlate. And, and I would say sometimes there is a lag, to your point, but oftentimes what you'll see is a slowdown in private market activity. So you could see less companies being sold as people reprice assets a little bit. That can be the case. I think where it's probably most pronounced is in the technology and, and growth areas where uh, the public markets have pulled back. And so I think on some of the rounds of some of the private companies, fast growing companies, there'll be a reset that takes a little bit of time. But I would point out not all markets have pulled back. The real estate market, for instance, because the fundamentals are very strong, particularly the sectors we're focused on, we're seeing pretty robust sales. And I think some sellers are thinking about selling. They're worried about rates. Um, so I'm not sure all markets have pulled back in the same way. But to your point, there is a lag at times in the mm. private market. John, you mentioned a worry about rates twice <laughs> in the last couple of minutes. I'm wondering what you think about what John Waldron over at Goldman Sachs had to say about what's gone on in the last couple of years, bringing into question the independence of the Fed and its ability to really control the trajectory going forward. Well, there are lots of Fed pundits. Um, I'm happy I've got my job. I'm not the Fed chair. What I would say is I'll focus on the future because that's what really matters as investors. And I think the future is pretty clear that the Fed realizes inflation has become elevated and they've got to modulate what they've been doing. And so they're going to shrink the size of their balance sheet. They're going to raise rates. And that's the new environment we're in. And as investors, I think you want to be thinking about that. You want to be thinking about an environment, at least in the near to intermediate term, where growth is actually pretty good, but inflation is running higher and the Fed is raising rates. And you want to buy assets that can do better in that kind of environment. Jonathan Gray, thank you so much. With Blackstone, their chief executive officer, and Chanel Basak, thank you so much. Joining us now is Margie Patel, Senior Portfolio Manager at Allspring Global Investments. Margie, your line, we think the recent sell-off and volatility is not indicative of the market direction for the year. I read your notes and then I checked the time. You sent that at 1.20 Eastern time yesterday, so I wonder whether you changed your mind after you heard from Chairman Powell. Uh, no, I haven't. And I think, once again, the hallmark of the Fed is they talk a lot tougher than their actions uh, to talk about four rate increases. But at the same time, the Fed is still buying <coughs> securities, adding to its portfolio. So to me, you're really seeing uh, mixed actions. We're not seeing a Fed that's looking to tighten. And uh, to see the Fed aggressively tighten five times this year, I think, is completely out of the question from the MO that the Fed has been using, where they're just as focused on the economy and on unemployment. And uh, not as focused as, as maybe market participants on slamming down inflation. Margie, you are a definitive student of how the financial system and corporations adapt and adjust to all this Fed blather. Two ideas. Bill Ackman goes out, does the Treasury play, and then buys Netflix large. Let's call that the Ackman gambit. And then this afternoon, it's going to be, what's it mean for Apple? What is all this Fed guessing and the guessing of inflation? What's it mean for real people out in the real world like Bill Ackman? Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Well, I think we really, once again, have to look at earnings, and I think earnings are going to be pretty good. I think margins, the early lead is margins by companies have been maintaining at these high historic levels, and I think that's key to stock pricing. Uh, yes, we've seen some areas of the market, uh, the more speculative, some of the overly popular names have a big um, cratering here in the last several months, but I don't think that's indicative of the total market and the ability to generate earnings. So I think it'll be pretty, uh, pretty good earnings season, and the market's vast overreacting to what the earnings are going to say. Margie, going back to the Fed, though, the fact that you can really shrug off uh, the rhetoric that we heard that most people took as hawkish, you got some message from the fact that they didn't stop bond purchases at this meeting. Why is that so important to you? Well, I think it's important because that's been one of the things they've done to keep rates low, if you remember. That was the idea. And uh, yet they're still continuing with this buying program, even though they're also talking about uh, we're going to be tough on raising rates. So to me, there's a real dichotomy there. Uh, they're not going to start to uh, to taper, really, till, uh, till after March. And it seems to me that if they really were going to do something, we would see it now. And also, I think that it's, it's one thing to think the Fed needs to slam on the brakes crash inflation, therefore slow the economy and raise unemployment, and that would go against their other mandate, which is trying to maintain full employment. So I think to see wages going up, employment, unemployment rates being very low, they're not too unhappy with what they're seeing, and they've never, uh, at least recently, tried to overreact and, and anticipate the way the market would like to see them. Margie, we've seen some big moves at the index level in this equity market, even bigger ones beneath the surface. What have you been doing to start the year? What have you been doing in the portfolio? Well, actually, I've been looking to add incrementally where some names have gotten hit. There are a lot of great names that uh, peaked maybe in the fall, say November, even December, and a lot of those names are down maybe 15, 20 percent over that period. Maybe year to date, they're <coughs> down, say, 5 percent. But I think that's a reasonable price mm -hmm. discount for companies that look pretty attractive long term. John, it's a highlight of the day to see someone as August as Margie Patel embrace the modern language of cratering. Never did I think I would hear the acclaimed Margie Patel say something was cratering. That's what it's been, Tom. It's great. Margie Patel of Allspring Global Investments. Margie, great cratering. to catch up with you. Thank you. Thank you. adapt to China GDP. Come on, that's a that's from that's a China statistic. I mean, we'll go to Bashansik on this in a moment. That's a China statistic from 15 years ago. Well, it's uh, you got to subtract the inflation rate out of that. So <laughs> that that's not as good a news, but 6.9% uh, is is pretty good. We can't really compare right. our GDP numbers to China's only, for a whole lot of reasons. Only Kathleen Bestjansik can do that. She joins us now, Chief U.S. Financial Economist, Oxford Economics. Kathleen, how do we go from the oddities of this moment in the look back to fourth quarter to the slamming on the brakes that's predicted? How do we affect that as an economy, as a nation? Well, we, we've had a bumpy ride here with the pandemic. Um, we've had outside gains in any given quarter, and then we see a pullback, and, and this is no exception. Um, you know, I think the Omicron variant, while it was less virulent, uh, certainly still tamped down on economic activity. And, you know, beneath those numbers, you know, typically, I would just comment that, you know, typically when inventories are up as much as they are contributing 4.9%, that would be bad and it would weigh on growth. Uh, but this time, I think Mike's right. It, it's actually a positive sign. Maybe supply chains are easing. 
and we'll actually have some goods for consumers to, to purchase once we get past this winter lull. Kathy, we've got to jump straight to the Fed. I just want your initial thoughts after that news conference yesterday, which just got so many people's attention. I was more surprised by how much you revealed. I didn't expect that yesterday. Yeah, I, I would agree. I was also surprised we didn't get a little bit of a pushback when asked whether uh, the Fed would, would be comfortable, you know, going every meeting uh, and his 50 basis points on the table. Um, he really steered away from that, said, well, we have no plans. So he gave no guidance. But in a sense, he gave us guidance saying that's quite possible. It's not maybe their base case, um, but, but you can't uh, deny that that's at least um, something you're considering. And, and inflation is the number one uh, thing that they're aiming at right now. Kathy, do you agree with Matt Luzzetti over at Deutsche Bank, as John was highlighting earlier, who talked about front loading the rate hikes and then seeing what effect, if any, that has on inflation in the back half of the year? Yeah, I think the one concern that I have, and it's a big concern, is, is the fallout in the financial markets, because we know that directly feeds into financial conditions. So you could have an unwanted, really choking of economic activity where we're still trying to get to full employment, right? Maximum and inclusive employment. So I think that's the risk for the Fed. Uh, yes, they want to tame inflation, but you don't want to kill off the expansion while you're doing it. So the market is not the economy. That's the, 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 the common trope out of Wall Street. So from your perspective, how much of a sell-off would it take for it to actually trickle into the real economy? Well, we look, I guess I would sound like Chairman Powell, we look at the broad financial conditions. So we have a, our own index, others do too. So it would be more than just the equity market, but it, it does figure prominently the VIX index, uh, the move index in the bond market, the, the spread, right, in, in tens to twos in the corporate bond uh, yield curve. So, uh, you know, if we see meaningfully tightening, um, in one sense, the Fed would be happy with that. I guess it, it can't be disorderly. If it starts to be to go borderline disorderly, then, then that's going to be a real signal for the Fed that they, they need to be careful and slow down. Kathy, this is a difficult one to answer, I know. So take as much time as you need. But the difference between orderly and disorderly, what is the dividing line between orderly and disorderly? <laughs> well, it, it, there is... There's no quantitative exact benchmark that we can use. Um, you kind of know it or see it, right, when it's happening. And uh, we know with things like the Treasury market has trouble, you know, filling orders or you get a gap between on the run and off the run. I know that's a bit in the big weeds, but if you get a breakdown in kind of the normal functioning of the markets, that's a real big red flag. Uh, but I also think if we start stocks, you know, let's put it this way. Typically, you don't see a bear market in the equity market unless we're going into recession. Um, and you don't see the yield curve inverting, typically, unless we're heading to recession. So those are sort of the extreme benchmarks, I think, that we would, you know, the Fed would be looking at. Kathy, I got one more question. Scott Minard stopped the show yesterday with his study of the late 1940s. In defense of Mr. Minard and people laughing at a study of 40 to 51, the fact is, boy, does it look the same. Do you see elements here of the late 1940s where we could crash into a serious disinflation or outright Eisenhower deflation? Well, it's something we internally are debating, actually, as a team, is, you know, right now inflation's running hot and it may continue to, but at, at some point, Fed tightens, fiscal policies tightening, and supply chains come online, the second half of the year, you get pretty big disinflation. And, and some categories, right, like used car prices, we would expect to see outright deflation and falling uh, prices. So I, I do think that once we get past this inflation hump, however you want to characterize it, but we look at it as kind of a hump, um, you're in for more disinflation uh, pressures and kind of back to the, the old norm. Kathy, 
Thank you. Was excited to catch up with you this morning. Thanks for being with us. That GDP print, just fantastic. Kathy Boschanschitz there. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.